Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together to worship you and around the word. We ask you to bless this time, anoint it, guide us and lead us into what you would have us to know from this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 21. As we mentioned last week, this is pretty much a repeat of Psalm 18. All right, and we're going to continue on with it, verse 21. The Lord reward me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands has he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also upright before him, and I have kept myself from iniquity. Wherefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the clean, my cleanness in his eye, eyesight. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful, and with the upright, you will show yourself upright. With the pure, you will show yourself pure, and with the forward, you will show yourself unsavory. And the afflicted people will you save, but your eyes are upon the haughty, that you may bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord will lighten my darkness. For by you I have run through a troop, O my God, I have leapt over the wall. As for, my, as for God, his ways are perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all them that trust him. For who is God save the Lord? And who is a rock save our God? God is my strength and power. He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like hinds feet. He sets me in high places. He teaches my hands to war so that the bow of steel is broken by my arms. You have also given me a shield the shield of your salvation and your gentleness have made me great. You have enlarged my steps under me and my feet do not slip. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them and turned not again until I have consumed them. And I have consumed them and wounded them that they could not arise. Yea, they are fallen under my feet. You have girded my, me with strength to battle. Them that rose up against me you have subdued. You have also given me the necks of my enemy, that I might destroy them that hate me. They looked, they looked, but there was none to save, even unto the Lord, but he answered them not. I'm going to stop there, because we've got probably more than I'm going to get to. So we look at this, and David's continuing this psalm of thanksgiving and praise. He starts out, and this is something we ended with him saying that God delights in us. And then verse 21, it says, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands, hath he recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. And I look at this, I start wondering, because I know David's life, and it's hard for me to figure this out if it refers to David. I almost believe that this is referring to Jesus in a messianic prophecy because David, we know, is not all that perfect. And he doesn't, David has very many times said, don't treat me after what I deserve, which is the heart cry of all people. You know, and I hear it all the time from those who aren't saved, you know, I just want what I deserve. No, you don't. You know, we as Christians understand we don't want what we deserve. We want God's grace. We want him to treat us after the righteousness of Christ, not after our own righteousness. So as I read this, I see, almost see that this is a picture of, of Jesus more than David. Because Jesus is all through the scriptures. And I see here that the Lord reward, rewarded me or gives me or repays me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has paid uh, Paid, paid me back. So I think about this and it says, I don't want God paying me after my own righteousness. Now on the flip side, as we walk with him, we start walking in righteousness more and more often, but I still don't want him rewarding me after my righteousness because that's not worth anything. Isaiah tells us that our righteousness is filthy rags. It could be that. It could be that he's talking about how God sees us, but I still don't want to be rewarded after that necessarily. Uh, other than, yes, I'm being seen in Christ. So maybe that's, that could be what he's saying. But, 
Yeah, because he sees Christ's righteousness. Go ahead and reward me after Christ's righteousness. And that would be a true statement. But again, then he's talking about Jesus more than he's talking about us. Which fits, fits in with what I'm, I'm leaning towards, that this is him seeing Jesus. Uh, because if God's treating us but after... Jesus wasn't there yet. Well, Jesus was around from the very beginning, remember. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, I understand that part, but... I believe that Jesus walked in the garden with Adam and Eve because God in the flesh walked with Adam and Eve, so it would have been Jesus. He was, Mel, he was Melchizedek. They didn't know him as Jesus. He was just God. Yeah, Jesus would have been the one that wrestled with, uh, with Jacob. Uh, you know, uh, he would have been the one that he was the one that met with Abraham when he was saying, "Shall we hide from Abraham? What's going to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah?" We see Jesus all through the scriptures, in reality as well as the picture of him. Uh, I believe that Jesus was the fourth man in the fire with it, with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because he saw the Son of God, is what Nebuchadnezzar said. I see the the fourth man is like the Son of God, and the Son of God did not come out of the fire with, the, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was just the three of them. So we see this picture, and you're right. I mean, technically, is it Jesus? No, they would, the Jews would say it was the Messiah. I see here that he's saying, reward me. And as, as you said, Betsy, it may very well be that he's saying, I'm clothed in Christ, treat me the way, the way you would Christ. I mean, he doesn't understand that necessarily. But David does understand a bit, of, a bit of God's grace and God's mercy because of what he's lived through and how God has promised him. God made David a promise that a king would, from his seed would sit on the throne forever, and it was an absolute, unconditional promise. No matter what David did and his children did, that was going to be true. So David understands God's grace and God's mercy in many ways. He stands before Goliath as a young man saying, you know, you, you've insulted God and you're going to die because God's going to use me, you know, to make you, you know, to kill you. Uh, you know, that's a little bit of a paraphrase, but that's really what he told Goliath. You know, you're dead. You, you've defied God and you're dead. Uh, he stood up over and over against this. So he understood the mercy of God and the grace of God. And he really understands the mercy of God when he has the, the adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then murders Uriah and doesn't end up dead. So he does understand. But when I read through this, I just go, David, you're a hard person to be saying, you know, treat me after my righteousness, and I have not departed from your word. Uh, this sounds to me more about a picture of Jesus than it does David. And David was considered a prophet, and he spoke many times in the scriptures uh, about Jesus and all that he did uh, in, in these psalms. And many times he talked about this. I'm not going to take a hard stance on this, but I see the Messiah in this, in this section. There's not a lot of indication that it is clearly speaking of the Messiah. Because he keeps saying my, but there are places where David, in, in one of the Psalms, I can't even remember what it is, David starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which is Jesus on the cross, and then it goes into a picture of Jesus all the way through. Uh, so David oftentimes in these Psalms and these records of praise spoke as if he was the Messiah, you know, with the voice of the Messiah on it. Like I say, I'm not going to take a strong stance on this because there's nothing, it's just thrown in there. But I really do see the Messiah being spoken about here more than, more than David. And it would be the prayer that Jesus would have been having, keep me strong, keep, keep treating me after what I deserve. And he's the only person that's walked on this world that could say, treat me as I deserve and get away with it. <laughs> All right. Uh, he says, I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. So like I said, the more I read this, the more I see Jesus here. David can't say these words in himself. All right? He just can't. There's, you know, he's had his adultery. He's had, he's had the murder. He's almost went out and killed Nabal in his anger. I mean, he's had many times where he's almost killed people. Uh, he played the fool in front of the king to try to get away, you know, a king in Philist the Philist Philistia to get away from him when he foolishly wore Goliath's sword into his presence. You know, David has not been able to say these words. Unless, the, the only way he could say this is just like us, knowing that God sees him as perfect. And, but even then, that's, 
the statements he's making just smack a little bit too much of uh, pride if it, if it belongs to somebody who's saying, God, you know, I have not departed from your, your righteousness. Well, I know that God sees me as not departed from his righteousness, uh, but I can never say that I've not departed from his righteousness. We will always then from that point in God's sight be clothed in the righteousness of Christ all through eternity. So we get that clothing and it stays because the tense in the Greek is one time continuous. So we get clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we always have the righteousness of Christ. Uh, otherwise God would not be able to deal with us because he would, if, he, if we got out of the righteousness of Christ, he would see our sin or see our righteousness more, more precisely. And we don't want him to even see our righteousness. You know, I don't want him to see me. You know, I'm happy that he sees Jesus when he looks at me. It makes life a whole lot easier. So we look at this, it says, Your judgments were before me, and as for your statutes, I did not depart from them. I was upright before him. I kept myself from iniquity. You know, I was upright, complete, whole. You know, and therefore the Lord hath recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my eyesight. And this is kind of an interesting thing because if this is still talking about Jesus, you know, and we think about what did Jesus go through because even though he was righteous, you know, this is a really interesting thing. God had a plan for Jesus. It's a plan that nobody else would have ever wanted to go through. Live a perfect life, die on a cross, and take the sins of the world so that you can be raised from the dead and, and be victorious over death. Great end, great end, terrible way to get there, uh, at least by human standards. But that also tells us, though, how many times does God put us through a ringer to get us to the other side for the reward? And we see this in all through the scriptures. Job really put through the ringer for God to turn around and bless him again. Abraham, called away from his family, wandered in the wilderness for the rest of his life. About 50 years or so, 50, 60 years. So almost, he spent half his life with his family and he spent the rest of his life wandering around the wilderness of, the, of Palestine where he ended up with one piece of property and one son when he's going to be the father of nations. <laughs> All right. Uh, we look at somebody like Joseph. Joseph says, Joseph, you know, gives them dreams. Joseph, you're going to be, your, your brothers are, are going to bow down to you. Matter of fact, your mother and dad are going to bow down to you as well. I'm going to make you a great person. Gets the dream, and it takes him 13 years before he's promoted, and another nine years before his brothers come before him and bow down before him. All right, long period of time. And you know, I, I, when I hear about these things and I think about these and I read the biographies and how long it took God to prepare many of these people for their, for their moving up in the world to, to their reward, I think how many of us in this day and age would be patient enough? You know, who would wait 13 years for the, for the first part of the promise to happen like John, uh, Joseph did? <laughs> you know, how many people would have been like Abraham wandering for 60 years waiting to see the fulfillment of a family? And it took 25 years before he finally got his first son of promise. He had Ishmael, which wasn't the son of promise. He did that on his own, doing his own thing, and has caused problems for Israel ever since. You know, and we look at this. Jesus came to this world, spent 34 years on this world being a perfect person and was killed for it. Killed because he was perfect and died for our sins so that he could be resurrected. Knowing that that was his goal in life. And go through all that pain. On going through the pain on the cross and doing it willingly. God created mankind knowing that we were going to sin so that he could wait for thousands of years for us to be glorified and to be in his children that he created us to be. 
and how impatient we get so, so often with God. God, you didn't do it yesterday. What's wrong with you? Now, and you hear it all the time when, when we talk about the second coming of Christ. People will very snar- sarcastically say, well, he hasn't come yet. Doesn't mean he's not coming. Just means we're one day closer. We are closer today than we were yesterday. And tomorrow we'll be closer than we were today. And if he doesn't come for, uh, for our lifetime, he's still closer than he was when he started. He is coming in his time. And we need to be able to really understand God has a plan and it is not our plan. We are short-sighted. I'm glad it's not my plan because I would have never put together the plan God has put together. Not in a million years would I have put together God's plan. And he has got a plan and we need to learn to trust in it. Even when it looks like he is not in control and he's lost all of his marbles, he's still in control and has not lost anything and has a plan. Well, we look at guys like Elliot and Nick St. James that were killed in the wilderness at a young age. Men who had early on decided they were going to serve God. And they were killed and everybody's going, what a tragedy. We lost three missionaries out of the deal. But yet the Indians then got convicted of what they had done because of the spirit touching them and went back and their wives got to go in and evangelize the very tribe that killed their, killed their husbands. Would that have happened if the men had stayed alive? Probably not. You know, God would have done something, but he used their deaths to motivate the gospel message. And so we oftentimes, we are so short-sighted in our, in our look at, looking at things. If it doesn't happen the way I think it should happen in my flesh, then it's not good. And God says, no, I have a plan. I'm going to crucify your flesh, and if it means killing you, I'll kill you. And we see this over and over. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and hundreds of people listed in there that have given their life for Christ, and in the process had hundreds and of people come to Christ because of their death, because of their braveness in their death. And in most cases, they're not, they're not screaming out in, in fear and facing that death. So we need to just get to this place where we recognize that God has a plan even when it's not our plan. Uh, you get a George Mueller now, how many times would he have been able to quit if he was looking at the site? Now, well, God, there's no dinner on the, on the table for the kids. You failed. I quit. <laughs> and instead of the dinner coming at the very last second. God, there's no money to pay these people. They expect a paycheck in about uh, one hour. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the money would come in to give them their, give them their pay. You know, it happens. God is always on time. Maybe not our on time the way we want him to be because we usually want him here early. God, I want the money in the bank the day before the checks are going to be going out, not, not three minutes before the checks are supposed to go out. I want to know that I've got it and just make me happy, God, because I don't need to be walking in faith. Just, just give me the money ahead of time. But God, if we read on these, all these different things, he says, this is what we're going to do. You know, Awal, missionary to China, you know, telling everybody how strong and powerful her God is and how she can't, doesn't need to be afraid of anything because God is in charge. So they send her in the middle of a prison riot with no guards. And said, well, if your, God's that, if your God's that strong, just go in there and he'll take care of you. And he did. Which then caused revivals to sweep through that place because all of a sudden God did a miracle that made no sense. She had preached that he could deliver and she shared with everybody that God could deliver. So they said, fine, your God can deliver. You're, you're, we're going to put you in a position where your God has got to deliver. You know, Want to go to the scriptures? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not bowing down before the idol. And Nebuchadnezzar going, you know, you're in my power, and who's going who's to deliver you from my hand? And their answer is classic. Well, our God can deliver you, but whether he does or does not, we will serve the Lord. And God delivered them out of the fire. They fully expected to die in the fire, which would have been just as great a, great a testimony because of their boldness and testimony before that, but it was even greater when God delivered them. 
And we don't even know how many times God has delivered us from death in our lifetime until we get to heaven and see how many times he's delivered us. I've, I've known people who have fallen off buildings and should have died because they fell off a two-story building and didn't, and got up with no damage whatsoever. And I, and I know Lynn's had that, you know, the tie rod went out on the car and she makes three turns with a, with a broken tie rod. That's got, and we know it was broken because the tie rod gouged the road for the, for the 50 feet that she, she drove with no tie rod. Things like that when you go, there are miracles out there that God has done. So we see this going on and God has a plan where he's treating us according to his plan. And it's a great, great thing to know that God has a plan. I take comfort in God being in control. Even when I don't understand it, I take comfort in, in, in God being in control. And I've told you many times ago, God, I don't understand this, but you are in control and you've promised that it's for good, so I'm going to just trust in your goodness. The thing about it is that we have to learn God is God and we're not. He doesn't have to tell us a word. You know. And I used to take that stance as a manager at times. Normally, I would tell people why I needed things done. If I had time, I told them why. If I didn't, I manager get, <laughs> get it done. Uh, and they knew if I took that stance, it was just because we were busy and I didn't have time to tell them what the reason why. He may show us later on why, and even then I think it's only a partial why. You know, this person got saved because you went through that. Okay, God, what else was there? And I think we're going to see in heaven that there was a lot more to it than what we even see in this world. And I'm looking forward to getting to heaven and saying, all right, God, what, what, what was the plan for that? Well, I just needed a dark space in my, in my tapestry. <laughs> you know, okay. If that's all you wanted, God, thank you. I'm glad I could be the, the decorative spot on the, on the tapestry. But then he says in verse 36, you will be merciful with, with mercy you will be, show yourself, with the merciful you will show yourself merciful. With the upright you will show yourself upright. With the pure you will show yourself pure. With the forward you will show yourself unsavory. This is kind of an interesting statement. But I think in this one is more the idea that God gives us what we do. The, the rules and laws of reciprocity. If we do good things, we get good things. If we do bad things, we get bad things. All right? And if we look at this, I think it also takes us in from the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. And God says... If you're forgiving, I will forgive. If you're merciful, I will be merciful. Because God will treat us the way we're treating other people. If we're a merciful, forgiving person, God will treat us with that same mercy and forgiveness. If you're a vindictive, aggressive person after everybody, God will say, fine, I won't, I'm not going to give you the blessings. I'm going to let you re reap the res results of the way you're treating people. So it's not God so much doing this as him letting the sowing and reaping take place and not blocking it or allowing more of the bad than the good coming in when we're, when, we're, when we're that way. I believe that when we forgive people and we are merciful to people, God starts blocking some of the bad things that we deserve because he says, you're going to reap the good. And he actively steps in and says, okay, we're going to block some of the bad. Not all of it. He's never going to block all the bad things from happening to us. But I think he actively comes in and says, you're, you're going to get more good than bad because of what you're doing. And that's part of the reaping, sowing and reaping. Right? We've got to keep this in mind. When we sow something, we reap. And the first rule of sowing and reaping is that you reap more than you sow. So if you're sowing good seed, you're going to get good things back. If you're sowing bad seed, you're going to get bad things back. And you hear it all the time from, well, I don't know why all this bad stuff's happening to me. Well, let's see, you, you were down, you were criticizing this person, you were getting vindictive against this person, you were cursing this person, you reap more than you sow. And, you know, this is something that is critical for us to understand. This is why it is important for us to be forgiving, be loving, be kind, you know, and the most critical thing about this is if I'm not out there trying to judge everybody and I'm just trying to love them, I'm going to speak good of them. I'm going to try to do what's best for them. And that may mean that I'm not doing what's best for me in the flesh. 
And there's times when that's just true. There's times when you just get humble and say, okay, God, this person's taking advantage of me. It's not going to hurt me that bad, but you can go get them. I love that God is the one that takes vengeance because I've watched God take vengeance, and I don't, I don't really like when I see it because sometimes he goes very vindictively against people because he knows what it takes to get them to turn, and he knows it better than we do because there's times when you need to be gentle with people, and there's times when they need to have a hard, hard stance taken against them. We know this, if you've had more than one kid, you've usually had a kid that all you got to do is, I have one kid, all you had to do is look at him and he'd cry. <laughs> I don't know how much of that was playing up or not, but you know, he was very tender, very soft. I had one that you could beat him to death and he would not pay attention to you. you know, he was stubborn. You, know, you go, you know, and God knows exactly how to deal with each individual. He says, well, I just have to lightly touch this person and they're going to they're respond. This person? I got to beat them over the head with a with a with an anvil, and they might might start to listen. <laughs> and he knows exactly what it takes to get it. And sometimes we look and say, God, did you really have to be that hard on the person? God is perfect, so yes, he had to have been that hard. And I've seen people who have had their whole life blown apart because of their stubbornness. The Jews had a great stubborn heart. All through this, all through the scriptures, a very stubborn heart, and God had to deal harshly with them. Somebody like David, he sent Nathan just to say, David, here's a story, and you're the, man that, you're the man that sinned, and David's heart broke. He was already guilty. He knew he was guilty. He was already suffering. All he needed was that little bit of a push over the, over the edge to, to confess. How are we when it comes time to, to confess to God? Are we hard-hearted or are we soft? Usually we start out pretty hard-hearted, and over the years we grow softer and more tender to God if we're growing to the point where sometimes it just takes even a, just a whisper. What are you doing? Uh, oh, oh, you're right. I'm not, I'm not headed the right direction. And so David is right here and he says, God, you're going to treat us in the way we deserve. The way we, the way we act, you're going you're gonna to respond back to us. Verse 29 says, You are my lamp, my O Lord, and the Lord will lighten my darkness. I love this. God is our light. And the, word, the, the idea that they use the word lamp is pretty important. Lamps only light a small area. Okay? He didn't say, you are my lighthouse, <laughs> shining, shining for miles and miles and miles, showing me the road. Uh, you're not my you know, million, million candle <laughs> flashlight. You know, he says, you're my lamp. Just a little bit. And you know, this is what I'm finding over the years with God is he just shows me the next couple steps. Here's your next step. Don't stumble. I'm showing you here's your step. Here's the hole. Don't step in that hole. And it's just a few feet in front of us. Now, a lot of people say, well, I wish God would show me the whole path ahead of me. I'm pretty glad he doesn't. Because some of the places he's taken me to if I had seen where he was taking me to from the beginning, I would have said, uh-uh, we're not, I can't do that. I'm not going there. You know, I'm not walking that path. I'm not going where you, where you asked me to go. So I, as I get older, I'm, I'm very happy that he shows me just a couple steps at a time. Walk this way. Do this. Do this. He doesn't, doesn't turn on the, the sunlight and show me all the horrors around me. And this is one of the things I think is going to really surprise us when we get to heaven and we see our life from the spiritual perspective and the battle that's been going on around us. We are going to be very happy that while we were alive, we didn't get to see that battle. God, you, you mean that army was attacking me and you sent your angels to keep that demonic army away from me? You, you blocked how many things from getting to me? You, you did, God, that, what, what happened in that? <laughs> you know, I was just praying for, for a miracle, God, and, you know, that is what happened when I prayed? <laughs> all, all the enemies came, tried to come against me, and you held them back? Satan, and I've said this over and over, Satan does not give up just because we turn to God and start serving him. He does not give up when a, when a town or a city or a village or a state or a country goes into revival. He comes back with more and more forces. 
to try to stop it. Knowing that he can't stop us from going to heaven, but trying to stop the revival to get more people. When we start making good decisions in our life and praying for good things, he starts coming at us in a stronger way. And we've shared this, you know, God is, if you're saved, if you're not saved, Satan's not worried about you at all. But if you're saved and all you're doing is sitting in a pew of a church, not, never getting up off your butt to do anything, God, Satan doesn't care. He doesn't like you in the church. He'd wish you weren't. He'll try to keep you out of church. But if all you're doing is sitting in the church, he's not going to care. You're not doing anything for the kingdom. You start giving money. You start getting up and giving out tracts. You start inviting people to church. You start showing people different things, and Satan will start moving against you in a greater and greater way. And that's when God stands for you and strengthens us. As long as we stay hidden in him, he'll strengthen us and give us the ability to keep going forward. The time we get in trouble, oh, I've got this, I can, I can handle this, I've given out, out 5,000 tracks in the last, last, last year, I can, I can do this one on my own. You know, you're in trouble. You know, God, I've been teaching all this time, I can, I can do this lesson on my own, I don't need you. Be the worst lesson ever heard. You know, and so we see this whole process going on says, God is my lamp and my light in the darkness. And he is the light. He will be the light of, et- of the new heaven and new earth. No shadows. Can you imagine that? No shadow. Light will be from everywhere. No shadows in the new heaven and new earth. He says, I, for by you I have run through a troop. By my God I have leapt over a wall. For as, as for God, his way is perfect. The Lord, the word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all them that trust him. And these are David's pictures of war. I have run through the troop. Nothing's touched me. Wall got in my way. I just jumped over the wall. And this wall doesn't seem to, I don't think he's thinking of a small little, little wall. He's talking about a wall. <laughs> a city wall, a fort, a, a, something that he says, God, you just let me jump over it. I hope you've experienced some of these times where you feel this victorious, where nothing can stop you because you're with God and he's given you a plan and you're running forward with him. You can't live that way all the time. At least I don't think you can. I haven't been able to. I don't know anybody who has. But there are times when just nothing's going to stop me. God and I are going to take this battle. I think about Jonathan taking his, his uh, armor bearer and coming to the bottom of the hill and the Philistines saying, and he says, we'll see what the Philistines say. If they say, come up here, God's delivered it to us. <laughs> Two men against an entire uh, garrison. And they say, come on up. Jonathan knew this feeling. I can run through a troop. I'm going to win. And he killed every man in the garrison. And we don't know how big a garrison was, but a garrison is going to have at least, uh, at least 30 people in it. Could have hundreds of people in it. And God delivered the entire garrison to Jonathan. An amazing battle. David understood those kind of battles. He stood before Goliath. Shouldn't have been able to beat Goliath. You know, Goliath, a giant of a man, literally, been a warrior all of his life, has huge armor on, and David comes with him a sling and a staff. <laughs> you know, I'm just a shepherd. You're just, you're just like the lion and bear that have been eating my, she- eating my sheep. God delivered them into my hand. He's going to deliver you. What faith. And God honored that faith. When we step out in faith, God honors it. Now, that doesn't mean we go out in presumption and just say, well, I can do anything. But when we go out in faith that God has called us to do something, in faith that God is wanting something done, even if it looks like an insane proposition, God's going to honor it. Why? Because he wants to see us walk by faith. For the just shall walk by faith is in the scriptures four times. I have a feeling God wants us to walk by faith. He told us often enough. And here we see David saying, you are my light. I can't see anything without God's light in reality. I may think I'm seeing things. The person who's into drugs and alcohol thinks that they're seeing seeing support, think that they're seeing good, but it is just a lie. 
God's light shines upon the lies and opens them up. You know, we're having the magician come on Saturday, but you know, the funny thing about any magic is when you know the trick and you're watching them, you know, you can say, ah, well, it's not quite as, not quite as much fun as it was when I didn't know the trick. And with Royce, I actually happened to see one of his tricks one time. I was sitting in just the right position to see exactly what was happening. I said, oh, is that how that trick is done? And I'm not going to tell. And I told him I wouldn't tell him any. I wouldn't tell him any, tell anybody. But it was, it's kind of taken away from the trick, because I know exactly how it's done now, and I know what to look for when it happens. God's light does that in our life. It takes away the lies of Satan. He shines the light upon the lie of Satan. And remember, Satan is the father of lies. He is a being that when he speaks, he's lying. Even if he thinks he's telling the truth, he's lying. Because he's going to bend it in some way that is no longer truth. Because that's who he is. And God lets us see through those lies. It's quite funny. There's been times when people have wanted to do something here at the church and there's just been the check in my heart saying, no, that's not going to happen. And then I find out what they really wanted to do. It's like, oh, thank you, God. You've shown the light on this situation and said, don't do it, and you had good reason for it. God's light shines, and because he is truth, he protects us from lies. And this is the one thing that we need to be aware of. When we spend our time in the truth of the word, the lies start to be very stark. We get to see the lies. Uh, when they teach the Treasury Department to find counterfeit bills, the way they do it is they do nothing but work for months with real money. No false money whatsoever. And then one day they'll slip in a bill that's a false bill, and they don't know why it's wrong. They just, you know, everything is, it doesn't look quite right. And then they pull it out and examine it, and they know what to look for. But because they're so used to the truth, the lie stands out. And you may not even understand why the lie is standing out. It just stands out because you're so deep into the truth. And I've been in many times when i just gone, something's not right. I don't know what's, right, not, what's not right about this, this saying, this person, this activity, but something is not right. And then usually God will reveal it. This was what was not right. Well, you watch them a couple months later as they're manipulating somebody else and cheating them. You go, that's what it was. That's what was not right. It was their heart that wasn't right, and God, you showed it to me. And this is important for us, that he is our lamp, and he will guide us through all of those, all of the enemies. In verse 31, as for, my, as for God, his way is perfect. God's way is perfect. It is complete. And it says that... He, the word of the Lord is tried. It has been refined. It is perfect as well. It has gone through the fire and come out pure. And his word is that way, and he is a buckler to them that trust in him. And that idea of trust we've talked about is somebody who puts everything into God's hands. Everything. God is perfect. His ways are perfect. His word is true. And he will be a shield to those who trust him. And as I've said, it's, it's not having a plan B. If, you know, it's not, well, God, I'm going to trust in you, but if you don't work, I've got plan B, C, and D in place in case you're not there. No. My trust in God is, God, you are plan A. Plan B is to believe in plan A. <laughs> plan C is to believe in plan A. You know, I have no other plan. <laughs> if plan A does not work... I'm in trouble, <laughs> okay, uh, because my whole heart and trust is in God. And there's no other trust in it that I'm putting anything in. And if I'm putting any other idea that I'm putting any other plan in place, then I haven't trusted God. And this is what salvation is all about. God, I put all of my trust in you. No other, no other plan. If you're, not, if you're not the one that's going to do it, then then I have no other plan. 
and I like to talk about rappelling because I've done rappelling and you know, little skinny rope, and that was back when I was pretty heavy, and I'm having to walk down a wall with a little skinny rope and saying, if this rope doesn't hold, I'm in trouble. No, I trusted the rope, and I proved I trusted the rope when I walked down the vertical, <laughs> vertical wall. That is the greatest picture of trusting Jesus that you can have. Jesus, I don't see that this is going to work. I don't know how this is going to work, but you've said it will work, and I'm going to put all that trust in you. you know, we're betting eternity on the Jesus and the word of God is true. And we don't know anything about eternity because we're not there. And we won't know until we get there. But, you know, every day he proves that he is true. Every day I walk with him, he proves that he is true in this world. And if he's true in this world, he will be true into eternity. And that's the good, that's the good news for us. People will say, well, how do you know that there's a God? Because I know him personally. He has provided for me over and over. Well, that was just good fortune or good consequence. I go, not as many as I've had. <laughs> if you want to believe that, my good, that I'm that lucky, you better be taking a bet on, the, bet on whatever, you know, whatever you want to bet on because you really believe in luck. I don't believe in that much luck. Uh, I know that God has protected me. I know that he has kept me. I know that he has guided me. And he has done wonderful things for me. And I love that he says that he loves us and that he cares for us and that there's an eternity to walk in. Just the peace that he gives us each day, the peace that passes understanding, that alone is worth everything. If that's all I had and there is no eternity, I've gotten a bunch, I've gotten a bunch in this lifetime more than most people. You know, I hear all these people that they're pushing for drugs to be legalized, especially marijuana, and you ask them, well, why do you want it? Well, well you know, it just mellows me out. Well, you know what? God has given me such peace that I don't need marijuana. I don't need drugs because God is the one giving me peace. I don't need a mind-altering you know, experience because God is my mind-altering experience. All right? I don't need man-made physical you know, herbs or anything else to make me alter my, my mind. I have the same problem with hypnosis treatments because hypnosis takes you into an emptiness that can be flooded by anything and once it's going to be flooded by anything, it's going to be flooded by demons. So we have these things going on that people say, I want to do the world's way. And they don't really realize what they're opening themselves up to. God gives us something that has no side effects, no, no problems with it, and says, this is for you. This is for you and he gives us peace. He gives us joy that's just unbelievably strong and protected. And this is why we want to be able to go forward with him, trusting him, be able to put all of our heart and soul into him. And then we go forward on this. He says, for God is my, oh, for who is God? Save the Lord. Who is a rock? Save our God. Our God is my strength. Oh, God is my strength and my power. He makes my way perfect, complete. God completes us, and he is our strength. This is the one thing we have to be able to understand. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. He crucifies me. He takes away what I think my strength is. My righteousness, he says, is filthy rags, and he, and he buries those under the blood and says, I am your strength, I am your righteousness. I am your perfection. I am the one that, you care, that cares for you. The more we learn to trust in God, the better off we're going to be. Because he's all of our strength. If I think I'm strong, God will let me walk in my own strength and get beat up. If I think I'm good, he'll let me, he'll let me walk in my goodness until I fall flat on my face. Why did David fall flat on his face with Bathsheba? He was getting a little uppity himself. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was the king, supposed to be out at war, and he was at home. And he just happened to be over on a rooftop overlooking somebody that he wasn't supposed to be, in a place that he wasn't supposed to be, seeing something he should not have seen, and then wondered why he was falling into sin. And then his flesh took over, and he fell into lust, and he fell into desire, 
and ended up committing a great crime, two great crimes, adultery and murder, all because he was at the wrong place at the wrong time <laughs> and saw something he should never have seen in the first place that led him down a path of sin. Satan is good about getting us at the wrong place at the wrong time and seeing something or hearing something that we shouldn't be hearing and then seeing how we're going to react. I've seen it over and over again. People listen to something they're not supposed to listen to because they weren't trained, they didn't know, they were blind, and then react to what they hear. See something that tempts them into sin and, and fall into sin. Over and over again, if we're not hidden in Christ, we will make the wrong decisions. And we get hidden in Christ, we stay hidden, we get into the word, we change the way we think. And over time, it's an amazing thing to me, but over time, God changes the way we think. You know, and the things we used to be able to uh, say, the things we used to be able to do, the shows we used to be able to watch, the, the books we used to be able to read, all of a sudden start saying, I can't do that anymore. God is changing my way of thinking. I cannot do the things I used to do. And we just slowly start pulling away. And then God shows us some more things that we're not allowed to do. And then he shows us some more things we're not allowed to do. He gives me plenty of things to put in its place. When God asked me to give up football, I loved football. I watched my, my football some 16 hours a week. And God says, are you ready to give it up? And the first few times he asked me, I said, no. And then one day he just says, would you, let, would you spend more time with me? Well, God, I don't have any more time. He goes, what about football? <laughs> and at that point in time, it's like, you know what? I could, I could give up a few games and be able to spend more time with God. Never dreamed that I'd give up all of my football. <laughs> and I'm not saying that football is sinful. I'm just saying God said, you've got a choice. You can spend that time wasted watching football, or you can spend your time with me. And this is how he does everything with us. Some things he asks us, eventually, you know, he starts out with sin, big sins, and then eventually he says, what about this? You could be using your time better if you did this. If you got rid of this, you could be using more time with me, more time in prayer, more time in the word, more time with the body of Christ. What about this? And I'm not saying these things are all sinful. Some of the things he takes out of our lives are not sinful. He just says, in comparison, you can do something for eternity, or you can do something for this world. Everything in this world is not bad. Being entertained is not a bad thing, necessarily. But we can also entertain ourselves away from God. And I'm not even saying bad shows. I'm just saying spend all the time being entertained and forget about God. It's not hard to do. Our flesh loves it. Just entertain me. Entertain me. Give me mind-numbing entertainment, because I don't want to think. And there are times when we just need to be entertained and not think for a while. God just took that away from me, not because football is bad, and I don't want everybody to think that football, I think that football is bad, it's just God took it away. We look at this and say, God, you are my strength. You are my protector. You are the one who helps me and makes me strong. And this is the thing about it. When people tell me that you're just using God as a crutch, I'm telling him, absolutely, he's my crutch, he's my, full, he's my strength, he's everything. I have no problem with that. Because I have found out that my strength wasn't worth a whole lot. Because I used to think of myself as a pretty strong person, and you know, I, could, I could withstand anything, I could, I could get through. I was, I was able to do things, and God has shown me over the years that that was not true. And he's taken my very things that I thought were strengths and, and allowed me to fall flat on my face in my very strongest areas. God will do that to us. Say, I am your strength. You're not strong. And I've said this so many times. We need to be very careful. If we think there's any place where we cannot sin, cannot fall, we're going to find that that's exactly where we're going to fall. Exactly. No, not even a question on it. I, I grew up as a teenager saying, I will never not go to church. And I ended up getting so busy with, with work that I stopped going to church for two and a half years. You know, and then, like I said, if anybody had told me as a teenager, there's going to be a time you're not going to church, I'd have laughed at them. Absolutely not. I love church. There's no way I would not go to church. My strength was, was my downfall. I didn't trust God in that, and he said, fine, here you go. Let's see how strong you really are.
and fell flat on my face. And I've said this, you know, we look at many of these men of God who have fallen through adultery and everything, televangelists. I would almost guarantee that every one of them have felt I would never commit adultery. I would never go against my vows as, as a, you know, and my wife. And they didn't put guards on their heart. And God says, okay, you think this is your strength? Let's see how, how long you can stand. Now, I don't know how long they stood either. You know, I want to be very careful. I, don't, I never want to judge them. Was it the very first person that threw themselves at them that they fell to? Probably not. Was it the first circumstance they walked into that they fell into? Probably not. Was it the hundredth, the five you hundredth, know, the, the thousandth? Who knows? But eventually we will fall in a place that we think we're strong. And God says, okay, now it's time for grace. Repent of your sin and let me lift you back up. We need to be very careful. Is all of our trust in him. We are a new creation in Christ. We are strong in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do nothing in my flesh. <laughs> Paul said that. I can do nothing in my flesh. And Paul was a very strong-willed man. And when he said, I can do nothing in my flesh, he'd been broken. Because he had already raised from, the, from nothing up to being a rabbi at a very young age and part of the Sanhedrin at a very young age. He was a self-motivated, strong-willed person, type A-driven personality who could get things done. And then he comes along and says, in my flesh, I can do nothing. Nothing of value is done in my flesh. God will bring each one of us to the place where we realize, I can do nothing in my flesh. It all has to be him. And that's an important place for us to be. All right, we're going to end here just because we're out of time. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank for this opportunity we had to, to look at your word. God, help us to rest in you to trust in you in all things. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.